0: all right welcome back this is the struck podcast episode three zero the big 30. so moving right along here in today's episode we've got a bunch of different topics number one we're gonna talk a little bit about southwest airlines gary kelly the ceo released a letter to his employees recently just talking about the trouble that the company is in so we'll chat a little bit about that lots of boeing news this week uh first uh we'll talk about how boeing's consolidating dreamliner production in south carolina We're also going to chat a little bit about a a bird strike, actually, in a Chinese jet fighter, which caused the plane to crash and he had to eject. So we'll chat a little bit about that. Uh, We'll also talk go back to Boeing with the 747 and 767 receiving an FAA warning about fuel tank ignition and what the implications might be there. Lastly, we're going to talk about two different business jets, the Learjet Liberty 75 and the Airbus ACJ 220. Uh, pretty interesting to kind of compare and contrast some of the, the, uh, marketing ideas, I guess, uh, in the upgrades of these two jets. And then lastly, in our EVTOL segment, we'll chat about the cyclogyro, one of the more bizarre designs that we've talked about here on the show. And, uh, we'll chat also a little bit about Volocopter and some of their plans for the Olympics. So Alan, let's talk about Southwest, probably your favorite airline, right? I, I it is, I would say it's mine, but I had some, I had a period of rough flights with them not physically rough but just delays and delays and like oh. they were telling me that my flight was delayed and then they undelayed it and it was oh. like physically impossible to make the flight this happened three times something mm-hmm. like that so anyway but i do respect southwest they've always had good leadership it seems like they are still uh doing great things as far as you know their leadership gary kelly is reducing his own salary to zero through the end of next year and he's asked for a ten to twenty percent pay cut from many in leadership, and he's trying to avoid layoffs. So, does this come as a, a surprise to you in general? I mean, do you think things are getting better, or what's what's your take here?
1: I don't think airline flights have really increased in terms of number of passengers very much over the last couple of months, and uh, with. The prognosis that we are probably three months out right now, between two and three months out from vaccinations and really protecting the most vulnerable—not you know people like us, which are pretty healthy for the most part—are not going to mm-hmm. get vaccinated first. We're going to be probably last in line. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to you know drag out the airline thing. I everybody is still there's still a lot of contention about whether it's safe to travel on an airplane and I think it's all about risk and reward and there, everything we do today and everything you do any day is full of risk and we have to evaluate risk I do think one of the features of Americans in general not to say we're not much different than other countries but I think there's this part of America which is uh, we take risks and we do we risk freedoms larger than we do uh, health consequences. You see it all the
0: time, mm-hmm. America. And, you know, Van, America. Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: it just it just sort of sort of built into the nature of of Americans. It's sort of how you grow up. Um, and I, I don't know if you can really put your finger on it about what part of that happens, but I think that it's true. It's just sort of built into the the, the way culture the culture is.
0: Yeah. Well, and one uh, opinion from uh, Scott Galloway over at the Pivot podcast with him and Kara-, Kara Swisher is he said, look, maybe the airlines are just not going to be as big in the future. Like, do they need to be as big as they were? Who's to say they did, you know? And so that's also potentially another long-term implication. I mean, Southwest is, what, a third of the size, a quarter, a quarter of the size of the other airlines? It maybe is. maybe all those airlines are just similar to, in size to Southwest, and there's just less flights in the second tier city that was kind of his his thesis you well, know if you live in, if you live if it, in chattanooga yeah. like you have a little less mobility now as compared to you know a place like dc or you know a bigger city
1: well there's inefficiencies in any system that's easy to, to point to the to the one or two inefficiencies in any system the mm-hmm. thing is is that if left up to choice people were flying and it, the the airlines were Full, Southwest carry rate was like in the 80% range. They were mostly full almost all the time. So yeah, yeah people are willing to travel and I think they're gonna still be willing to travel. It's just finding that that sort of happy medium of of where risk and reward are. Do I wanna go visit my family for Thanksgiving or do I not wanna do that? And I think this is gonna be a really interesting test because in November, it's a large Thanksgiving in the United States is it's the most traveled day of the year. Bigger Mm -hmm. than Christmas, bigger than any other holiday. Thanksgiving is that one, especially for airline travel. And I was noticing, I was checking yesterday a little bit to see if airline travel is starting to pick up for Thanksgiving. Not really. People are not really booking tickets for Thanksgiving yet on Southwest. Uh, That's really odd. So people are waiting a little bit to see what happens over the next couple of weeks, probably realizing they can probably still book tickets. But if you have a a really uh, down time around Thanksgiving, it's going to hurt these airlines to the point where, yeah, they're going to be hurt for a couple of years.
0: All right. So moving on, let's talk about Boeing. They're pulling their 787 Dreamliner production from Seattle and moving it to North Charleston, South Carolina. South Carolina. So they said basically they're going to make six, seven, eighty-seven planes next year per month, down from ten. So a forty percent cut. How big of a deal is this? It's a big deal.
1: I think from Boeing's perspective, it's a just from the operational side, it it is a big deal because they've always delivered airplanes out of the Seattle area. So this would be the first time that they haven't in a long time uh, during World War II, and for a long time, Uh, the airplanes were delivered out of Wichita, Kansas. They had a huge assembly factory in Wichita, Kansas. So it isn't like the first time that Boeing as a company has delivered product outside of the Seattle area, especially when they bought uh, McDonnell Douglas. They had a place down in Long Beach that was making airplanes also. So they had a, a bunch of places that were making airplanes. I think the the thought process and what you hear a lot right now about this transaction is it's all about the unions. I don't think it's about the unions so much as just efficiency. The plant in South Carolina, if I remember correctly, was purchased by Boeing. It was owned by somebody else. and I don't want to call them out by name, but essentially they were making parts in uh, the South Carolina area, if I remember correctly, and it didn't go right and so boeing acquired the company took over the production so a lot of the production of like the tail sections and large sections of the airplane are made in south carolina and then they're flown to washington state to be assembled into airplanes there also so if the if the, a lot of the piece parts the big sub assemblies are made in south carolina flying them to washington state doesn't make any sense at that point if you don't need the production space so it makes a lot more sense to keep it in south carolina just make the whole aircraft there and be done with it which is what the decision they they made i don't think it has a lot to do with union i think it has a lot to do with just efficiency of the system
0: gotcha yeah no that makes sense going from one corner of the country to the other that seems just logistically like a nightmare so moving on the uh, uh there was a chinese fighter jet that was downed they took a bird uh, just shortly after takeoff couldn't restore thrust uh the pilot dejected and the plane crashed so you don't hear about this too often with fighters i don't feel like but i mean what's the difference obviously if you're in a commercial airliner you can take a bird in one engine right and you still have plenty mm-hmm. of thrust to, to carry on if need be or yes. at least get to a safe landing but right how is that different in a fighter jet
1: well fighter jets tend to be single engine <laughs> <laughs> just the way they built to be more agile, uh, unless they're C based and which a lot of times are twin engine. But even today, a lot of them are single engine. The F 16 was, is sort of similar to that. It's just one big engine. Um, and if you take a bird in that, I think they're made to handle some amount of bird, but wrong bird, wrong time, particularly on takeoff, you don't have any altitude, what are you going to do? There's not many places to go. You have no thrust. You don't have a lot of lift on those aircraft because they're not designed for lift. They're like rocket ships. You just point it in the right direction and aim at it. And so there's very little lift. You're not going to glide very far. You better get out of it as fast as you can. And, the same thing happened if you remember with the canadian snowbirds uh, a couple of months ago when they were going back to canada or back to their home base they were i think they were in canada but they're going back to their home base and on takeoff they took they ingested that bird uh, and the two pilots ejected one of them was uh, injured and died out of that the other one was severely injured if i remember right and on takeoff when you take a bird in the engine you got to get altitude as fast as humanly really can so if you watch the canadian snowbird one which there's video of you see the pilots and as soon as they you see that bird comes through the engine and they lose thrust they just are trying to gain altitude trying to buy more time mm-hmm. and it's it's such a serious thing there's a really interesting video on youtube uh, of an f 16 pilot taking a bird on i think it's on takeoff he's not very high above the ground and then just a burden and the engine just basically stops and then he's a glider and then he, you know he tries to point the thing in a place where it's not going to hit anybody or any homes and ejects out of it those it's just part of the deal right if you bad timing bird on one engine
0: bad bad news yeah that's scary all right so we're gonna jump into our engineering segment here first topic here for today Boeing uh their 747 and 767 aircraft they got a FAA warning a uh, new airworthiness directive saying that they basically need to do more to fix their fuel monitoring their fuel tank monitoring systems to prevent the risk of ignition within these tanks so they said that they've got 72 months to make these changes which to me as an outsider it's like, wait, six years, we could be flying on these planes where they have some risk of ignition? Does Am I wrong in feeling like that's a crazy long time to fix this? Or is that more of an indicator that this is not that big of a problem?
1: Well, 767s are aren't really not used for commercial flight anymore. They're, they're cargo airplanes. And same thing where well, 747s are pretty much shut down, so they're going to be cargo airplanes. Um, so as soon as they get out of having a bunch of passengers on them, they're going to get, extend the amount of time it takes to, to, to modify them. I haven't seen the details of and I want to look through this here uh, later this week, but the details of what the FAA is requiring them to do and what regulation they're holding them accountable to um, is going to be fascinating. Because a 767 is an, is an older, in, in terms of airplanes, is an older airplane design. And obviously mm-hmm. a 747 is a 50-year-old airplane. Uh, so what are you going to do, right? And there's only so much you can do to those fuel systems to make them absolutely safe to the latest rules. Um, I, I think that there's there's going to be more safety oversight from the FAA than there has been in the past because of the 737 stuff. And anytime that there's a, a Boeing issue, it's going to see a lot of press just because it makes clicks. Yeah. Is it, is it really a safety issue? You know, that's, that's the hard part. I don't, you kind of feel like, no, because it's been flying this way for a while, but. If there's a reasonable way, I mean, this is, and this is sort of the trade-off in terms of time to fix it versus uh, really safety impact. If it was an immediate safety impact where they thought airplanes are going to have catastrophic problems, they would immediately ground the airplanes and make them fix it immediately. But if it's something that's has an extremely low probability and it takes a combination of failures to occur, and they can mm-hmm. flag those failures ahead of time then they tend to extend out the amount of time it takes to to make the mod, if they make it at all. Because a lot of times, when they have these long periods of of updates, the airplanes just get shelved. They just get put in the desert and never used again. That's what happens.
0: All right, so let's chat a little bit about these two new business jets. So one, the Airbus ACJ 220, and now this one's really fancy because they don't write the number 220, they spell it with no space so two t-w-o-t-w-e-n-t-y the 220 that's how you know it's fancy when they're writing it out Uh, but the 220 they said has basically a third less operating costs than the previous a220 family uh and yet has three times the cabin space which is pretty cool so a lot of a lot of amenities and it looks pretty fancy. I mean, I'm just going to be honest here. I'd like one of these. So <laughs> put this on my Christmas list, so you can put it in, in my stocking. Um, but it looks roomy. It looks awesome. I mean, it looks really modern and cool. Mm. Uh, now, let's compare this to another one that's getting some press. The Le- Learjet uh, 75 Liberty, which this is so this just strikes me as really bizarre. So it's a, about a $10 million jet, but it's not really fundamentally different than a Learjet 75. And here's a quote from this article on, on RobReport.com. Uh, so this is a quote from Brian Foley, who's an aviation industry strategist. He says, it's an odd strategy when you refresh a product by taking amenities out of it. So basically, they said the, this, the Learjet 75 Liberty is basically just a Learjet 75 that they took some seats out of, took some other things out of it to make it lighter and thus more fuel efficient. And that's essentially where they're at with this new jet. So I I read these two articles. I kind of laughed because on the one they're like, we've got, you know, the Airbus, they have, we've got these new engines. It's the most fuel efficient in its class. Like everything about this mm-hmm. is just more efficient and just high tech. And then the 75 Liberty is like, we just took some stuff out of it. <laughs> so, yeah. am I, but am I might, but um, I, I should stop laughing, but am I missing something here? Uh, not much
1: really. The the Learjet designs an old design coming off the, I think the seventy five is an old Lear forty five um, based design, which is made in the in the late nineties or no late eighties. Um, but the that is the the, the seventy five and, and the Learjet. Uh, just full disclosure, I've I've worked for Learjet in the past, so the Learjet sort of claim to fame was just better performance like more thrust get to altitude sooner more of a race car ferrari Mm -hmm. uh, for the pilot get to your destination faster sort of thing whereas the um uh, the a220 which is their best 220 which was a c series is more of a passenger jet so they're sort of in different marketplaces there the thing about learjet and the learjet series and why the learjet 85 was sort of be the next step was that the learjet 85 was a larger fuselage section and that's the problem with the the learjets today is that their fuselage diameter is relatively small in today's world Mm -hmm. and it's hard to sell those things and the, the way the learjet used to be sold was the pilot was the owner a lot of cases that's the way it was 20, even 20 years ago was a lot of times that 30 years ago, 40 years ago for sure was that the, the guy that, Owned the company also flew his own jet to get to eight point a to b that was the typical thing that doesn't really happen anymore a lot of these things are on leases and whatnot and so what's happening now is the people that or the companies that purchase these aircraft don't fly them so the amenities start to play more of a factor this is why your Gulfstreams streams are getting bigger and more elaborate and uh, the bombardier airplanes are getting more elaborate cabins and more amenities to them for long flights and all that is that uh, the customers want to have legroom, headroom, lavatory, all that stuff, which is what the 220 has. And the Lear 75 just really won't have that. So you have to make that trade-off of speed versus efficiency and cost. And the Learjet's always been a little more expensive than its competitors. It's it's just in a bad place right now, the Learjet is. And the the A220 civilian version of the thing is going to be a – probably a pretty good hit actually uh, just because it's it's it is very efficient. The, the engines are right. It's a twin engine. It's got the cabin space. It was it's 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 got all the uh, it checks all the boxes. Yeah. It's not as yeah. big as the 757. It. I'm into it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, nice. it, yeah. So the next one's like the 737, right? So it's a seven thirty seven is a much bigger aircraft and so it sort of fits that bigger than Gulfstream? Roughly Gulfstream size airplane? but more efficient probably is the argument that they're going to make. Yeah. So I, I you know, I, I think the problem, the problem I think is the Airbus is going to market it, which is the problem. And I don't think Airbus has really marketed that's upended uh, uh, business aircraft, derivatives very well versus a company like bombardier which will sell the heck out of <laughs> and gulfstream too and embraer for that matter that they sell those business aircraft like there's no they just know how to fit that market how to sell that stuff and airbus is more into selling airplanes to air france and uh delta than they are to the corporate business owner i think
0: well and, and what real quick what would you say the difference is i mean does bombardier just they go to all the, like, the fanciest restaurants and they slip them a, a pamphlet or I mean, what what's, yeah. what's marketing look like?
1: Oh, oh yeah. Right. So the, they'll have uh, Hollywood pilots, be their spokespeople or F formula one race car drivers, be their spokesperson for the aircraft and they'll demo it and they'll have these events. And it's like selling an upgrade, a, a very expensive car. They're in the same places where you, you go buy your new, uh Picket Ferrari, Maserati, whatever, um, Mm -hmm. they'll be there trying to sell an airplane, same places, the same group of people. And I, I think you have to have connections in that marketplace, know who the buyers likely are, where they're gonna be, what times of year they're gonna be there. It's sort of a click that you wanna be in. And if you don't do that, you're just gonna miss opportunities.
0: All right, so our last segment today, we're going to talk about EVTOLs again. First, we're going to talk about Volocopters. So they've got some ambitions just to start testing in the Paris, France region and with an eye to sort of like have a comfort level maybe with the public and, and to get to certification so they can be there for the 2024 Olympics. Alan, do you feel like that's a realistic goal? I think that it is. Uh, I, th- I think they will definitely get there just because how far their, their prototypes
1: are developed already getting to s- test mode and, and doing a lot of flight testing and getting certain check the box of certification, most likely they'll be able to get to the Paris Olympics. I, I think the, the question about the helicopter, even though I like it is that it's going to have a lot of competition between now and 2024. Mm-hmm. And does it get out front and is 2024 too late <laughs> to, to sort of set that pace? Because just listen to some of the discussions on some of the other EVTOLs the the kicker in terms of battery usage is you don't want to be in hovering flight very long right and the volocopter is in hovering flight all the time just the way it's set up so it is a, essentially a helicopter so that smokes battery time just eats up battery time a lot of the other designs that are coming about right now transition from vertical flight to horizontal flight as fast as you humanly can to get some lift off those wings decrease the amount of power usage to get from a to b so they have longer ranges faster flight time or shorter flight times higher speed velocities higher speeds versus the volocopter which is more like get from one side of paris to the other side of paris sort of product Uh, we'll see how it goes but i I, you know volocopter has been very aggressive on on driving the market, trying to get the thing out there, showing it and showing that sort of leadership position. They need to continue to do that. If they continue to do that, they will set the pace. And that's exactly what you want to do right now. Set the pace, set the expectations, deliver a product as soon as you can get it into service and then work on generation two. Right? So I would I-, I would hope they would come before 2044. That's what my hope is that the, that the Paris Olympics things, they are on generation two, that's what my hope is.
0: Well. Last question from me here is: How do you have a company that doesn't have a product for four more years? Obviously, this is oh. what what the aviation industry is. Like, I get yes. it, but but I don't get it. Like, what they've got to just burn cash for the next fifty months? Yes. Yes. That
1: this is why amazing aircraft is just and an just, awful business. Yeah, it's because you have to burn cash and you never. Who would have predicted eighteen months ago that we would all be in COVID nineteen lockdown and no one's flying? Nobody, right? So that's the risk you take, and you're not taking it with a million dollars. You're taking it with a $500 million, and you're, mm-hmm. you just need loads of cash to, to support the amount of engineers and developers and flight tests and support staff and certification groups and all the other things, HR, that it takes to get from A to B on the on these projects. It's, it is literally hundreds of millions of dollars. I know it's hard to think about like that, but it's hundreds of million dollars. And who are you going to find is going to invest a couple hundred million dollars into a project, which shows on the return side, how fast can you return it? Not that fast. Unless you're going to make a lot of these things and you can show you got the customer base to do it, you're going to find very few investors.
0: Speaking of maybe not that many investors, let's talk about the cyclo gyro. (laughs) So... I saw this design today, and I thought of you immediately. And I'm like, "Alan is going to have a field day with this because so Cyclotech is the company, and they're they have this Cyclogyro. It's just a concept, it's just a drawing, uh, but they're talking about applying principles of aquatic propulsion, you know, the way boats rudder themselves and propel themselves to airplanes. Alan, does this work? Why or why not? No. Oh, no. cut it real short.
1: <laughs> no, it looks like a paddle boat. So if you're familiar with uh, 1900 era, eighteen late 1800, 1900 yeah, era, it's got four water wheels. boats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's right going up and down the Mississippi River. Yeah, that's what it looks like. And I, there's a there's a there's a difference between water propulsion and air propulsion. Is that water is an incompressible fluid and air is compressible. So the the, the physics of it are totally different. And uh, let's just say you know, I was looking to see if someone actually had made a, a scale model of this thing to go fly around in the backyard. And they ha- at least I haven't seen it. So it makes you wonder if the physics work at all. But let's just say that they do. Let's just say we'll just okay. ignore physics for a minute and just say magically this thing flies. OK, awesome. How are you going to certify that thing? How are you going to bring in a certification authority which has never seen this thing, has all kinds of moving parts? How are you going to certify it? Because the thing about certification on the F- on the FAA, EASA, Transport Canada, picking one of them is that you're trying to get to some sort of safety, minimum level of safety. That's what all these certification efforts are about, is just, it's just showing a minimum level of safety. I don't know how you do that because it has no proven technology. It's never been done even on an experimental level. There's no experimental aircraft that use used this thing. It still has zero history. There's just no chance. And that this is the trouble this is the trouble I think that the aviation community gets in. It sort of promotes not that the the real aviation community, the, the engineers and the guys that are or not guys, but the people that really push the envelope are well, looking back at this like there's no way this thing's gonna be real. Um, even if they get it to work on, even if they get a prototype to work, getting it to to be in a sellable form is going to be extremely difficult. So it sort of distracts the industry a little bit where they have designs that could be put into service are in question because of this other thing, which is this thing in theory. And if you're sitting in a room for investors who don't know all that much about what the physics of these things are, you kind of get these crazy looks around the table. Like why are the other guys going to use a totally different propulsion technology? Why are we not looking at that? And as an engineer, you're like, well, because it's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that, that's, not a, that's not a good answer because the response back you guys yeah but can you check it out and you're like man I gotta waste two weeks looking at this thing like come on right I got, I got work to do and, and that's the sort of the cycle you get in and, and if you watch some of these EVTOLs and some of the gyrations that are going in right now in terms of an industry you're seeing that like alright we can't use a ducted fan well why not because well I can't transition from vertical to horizontal flight without, without crashing this thing once in a while so we need to dump the duct OK, but we, we we like the duck. It looks cool. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I can't I can't certify it. Well, I mean, could you could you play around with it a little while? Like, look, we're burning cash at unbelievable rates. We have to get this something out in the field and something certified as fast as you humanly can or we're all going to be on the street looking for work. And that's sort of the, the contention that, that rises when you see concepts like this.
0: Well, and going back to what we were talking about before, Say this is super cool and it actually can fly, but then certification is going to be super long. Now, what yeah. this company's six, seven, eight years from being certified, they've got to burn cash for eight years, maybe. Yeah, and that's just a number yeah. I'm throwing out, but yeah, yeah, you that do. seems just like untenable as a business.
1: Yeah, and, and it's probably have to build production facilities. Who's going to build this thing? What all the, you know, that, all the machinery and, and components that have to go into it, and it's all going to be different we used before, there's a lot to an airplane. I don't know how else to describe it. I know we look at Tesla and go, oh, look, they can make cars. Yeah, Yeah. they can make cars, but when the thing runs out of gas, you're not going to, or electricity, it's not going to, you're not going to crash, right? You're not going to kill somebody. Uh, Airplane's totally different, and cars don't have that same level of oversight that airplanes do, and rightly so. They don't need it. Uh, So you, you lose that sort of perspective on how difficult this task really is. It is, if you look at the number of airplanes that have been successfully certified over the last 25 years, it's not that many. And you, you say to yourself, well, why? Because, you know, all these engineers and the tech- technology is just not good enough to, to push advancement. No, that's not it at all. It's, it's because all the technology advancements cost money and it takes a, a whole lot of money and you're going to make it back one airplane at a time. And you only say you only sell 50 a year. It's going to take forever to get your return on investment there. It's a bad investment. And that's what happens is that unless you can show you're going to test some world-changing technology and you can deliver it, your investors are
0: nowhere. All right, well that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening and please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at WeatherGuardAero.com. That's WeatherGuardAero.com.